0: Welcome to Thinking Too Hard About Anime, an episode-by-episode episode discussion of a beloved animated series. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of analysis, and a lot of over-examining the Japanese cartoons we love so much. I am your co-host, Noah Carden, and joining me, like always, is... Aaron J. Shelton. We are here for session 20 of
1: Cowboy Bebop, Perot LeFou. So the synopsis for this episode is that Spike barely escapes an encounter with a homicidal balloon man uh, and because this balloon man uh, does not let anyone get a, see his face without dying, uh, he challenges spite to a showdown at an amusement park um, and nothing means anything. hmm is part of the that's my that's my spin of the synopsis. Nothing means anything, but we can get into it here in a second.
0: Okay. so this episode was directed by Yoshiyuki Takei. And written by Sadayuki Murai. And I'm going to give a special shout-out to the animation director, Takahiro Komori, for this episode. Because this episode is super well animated and very action-y. And uh, I think they did a great job with both the animation and just sort of the aesthetic of the episode. Like the lighting and everything. I think it all works very, very well. The episode title, Perrault Fou" comes from a 1965 French New Wave film and a song by the band Yellow Magic Orchestra. Oh. Had. So it's kind of a, a double reference because Perrault Fou" means Perrault the Madman in French, and Yellow Magic Orchestra have a song called Mad
1: Perrault. So it's effectively the same thing, just jumbled a little bit um yeah i'm always i'm always leery of translations because it can go a bunch of different ways i think yeah
0: it's you know uh saying like this is so and so's thing or the thing of so and so that kind of like syntax or, or grammatical kind of setup
1: um i in the in parole Fu the the movie which we will give spoilers if we're going to talk about it at the end um I think the subtitle I got for the title was just "Crazy Peter," huh? Because Perot is a, a, again, we'll talk about it more in a second. Uh, Perot is sort of a a nickname for Pierre. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's yeah, there's a bunch of this episode. (laughs) I felt um, like I had to go deeper than usual,
0: but it's it's also um, the the main character, the main antagonist for this episode. Um, Mad Perot. His other name is Tong Poo, which is another song on the same album by Yellow Magic Orchestra.
1: Oh, um,
0: so there you go. Uh, and Yellow Magic Orchestra is a um, a Japanese electronic music band uh, from like the late seventies. Um, there, the album that both of those songs uh, showed up on Tong Poo. And uh, Mad Perot actually entered the Billboard Top 200 and R&B album charts in the United States uh, when it premiered. So I just thought that was a little interesting. The album apparently has uh, themes for video games on it. So <laughs> okay, so the the U.S. pressing. This is the the track listing. Side one is computer game theme from the circus. Firecracker, Samoon, Cosmic Surfin', Computer Game Theme from The Invader, and then Side 2 is Yellow Magic, Tong poo, uh, La Femme Chinoise, I think I butchered that. Um, Bridge Over Troubled Music, and then Mad Perot. So, so yeah, they should have some uh, like early, early, early chiptune kind of music in their their uh, their albums.
1: Yeah, we'll do a we'll do a very tiny sound drop just just because I think yeah I, I mean this is the first time I've heard of them.
0: Uh, I listened to Mad Perot and it is it's an appropriate title because that song is chaotic.
1: <laughs> I'm surprised then that they didn't cover uh, one of these songs like they did for the. I'm, I'm surprised they made the choice they made uh, in a later scene where we learn about the history of uh, Fu. Mm-hmm. Uh because during that whole sequence they have the seatbelts do a cover of Pink Floyd's On the Run uh, which is on the dark side of the moon I mean the, it's very appropriate I'm curious how the rights situation uh, happened over there because here in the States that's a big get to get a Pink Floyd song mm-hmm. um, definitely. Um, and for this you know cartoon i'm curious i have no idea but i'm curious what the legality of them music it is i think it was released on a a lot of tracks from this episode were released only on the b side or what is it
0: uh the, in the box set
1: yeah on, on the box set which has more way more unreleased stuff
0: yeah like that box set it goes um like pretty much in order of the episodes because you get like little um audio like dialogue snippets as if it were say like the soundtrack to like Pulp Fiction or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. so you get like little audio snippets of like, you know, spike and jet talking and things like that from the actual episodes. And then it'll play like some songs in that episode or that would be around that episode. Um, so yeah, so you get like amusement park and on the run in there. Um, it's a, it's a real, it's an interesting listen if you go, if you start from the beginning and just let it play all the way through if you treat it as like a complete album.
1: You have that one, right? Or no?
0: Uh, I have a completely legal copy
1: of it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was asking. I wasn't applying mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah, totally. um You got your, you got your five disc changer. Uh-huh. In the, the tray's in your truck. <laughs> and then whenever <laughs> you want to swap a disc out, you got to go back there. <laughs> oh are we not recording this from 99 <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh we had a, a a
0: god it was like a six disc changer in one of my parents vehicles when i was younger i think it was uh the actual like disc holder was like underneath one of the like the passenger seat or something like that mm-hmm. it was that, that was just crazy
1: me, that just makes me think of uh the black or the jetly movie black mask where I think there's one scene where he has, like, CDs as weapons, and they're in one of those trays. That's how they, like, pop out. and You Mm. can toss them at people. Nice. Um, So, yeah, initial initial thoughts for this episode.
0: I very clearly remember this episode from, like, the first time I ever watched it. Uh, I think there's just something so striking about the visuals of this episode about Tongpu, about the end of the episode that really just kind of stick with you, especially if you're, like, in your teenage years and this comes on late at night and you just get very, very sort of confused and maybe even a little scared of what you're watching. But as much of the like, I, a just sort of, like, showdown sort of bottle episode, this is... And how it doesn't really, it doesn't really connect to anything else in the show. I mean, not that a lot of the episodes do, but you don't get a whole lot in this episode. But it's still, like, super memorable, at least in, in my opinion.
1: I, like you have a distinct memory of when I first saw this on disc uh, in my friend's room on the, you know, the little night, well, big at the time, 19 inches. mm mm-hmm. uh, monitor. So I it, I was watching I watched this at sort of the same time that I was uh, getting into film uh, uh, as more of like critically thinking about it. And I think for a lot of people when they first get into film, they look at it as this very serious sort of art form, which it is and it is it's it is, but it's super dumb too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know I would I was devouring a lot more of like the these very these dramas these like hardcore stuff um I think at this time I had watched Requiem for a Dream in theaters twice the first time by like my brother's like hey man we're going to go watch this movie I'm like oh he did pie of course I want to see this and then the next week like hey my friend wants to watch this too I'm like yeah let's watch it again of course why wouldn't I <laughs> So that so that's sort of where my mind's where my head was. So like, I remember when I watched it, I remember like being super blown away by it and just like, Oh, this is really, really the power of film. And like, you know, noticing editing, you know, for one of the first times, Mm -hmm. um, especially that, that that opening sequence with like maybe three lines of dialogue spoken is so, is so powerful. Now, my my feelings are i think it is so out there for cowboy bebop as a whole mm-hmm. i think it's one of the most pessimistic if not outright nihilistic episodes that we've seen so far um cuz nothing's things are resolved but nothing is learned from it and nothing is gained yeah um well, at the same time, being I dare say one of the most visually striking episodes, just the the technique and the craft mm-hmm. used in these action scenes, and yeah, yeah. There's just a you know big boy word dichotomy. <laughs> there's such yeah. a of that is so interesting and out of left field. I, yeah, I wish I knew more about how this episode came to be.
0: Okay, well. Uh, I do have my big old list of early show descriptions. And here here is the original pitch for the episode. Episode 20, Perot LeFou. So we're good there. Uh, an episode about Tong Poo, a clown-like assassin who comes after Spike. A peculiar hard-boiled style. A battle in an outer space amusement park. Surreal imagery. Ed gets lost. So out of that like little three like, three-sentence description,
1: like, it's pretty one-for-one one aside from Ed getting lost. Yeah. Um, there There is weirdly some very good Ed. Again, mm-hmm. I think, like you said, to the animation director's credit, uh, some good noodle arm. She answers the phone with her foot, which is mm-hmm. very
0: fun and funny. Uh, I love it when Faye grabs her by the head and her head stays still, but the rest of her body is still constantly moving. <laughs> Obviously, again, the visuals of this episode are incredibly striking. Um, there's something about the way, especially towards the beginning, uh, where it's the shots that just go through the the rows of buildings, where the ground level is is brightly lit, or you know at least lit, and as you go up the building, it gets darker, and it just very harshly hits that really dark shadow. And I think come that combined with the fact that a lot of these buildings for, you know, animation's sake are just really cheap, flat CG renders that have like a, an image textured over them. But something about them reminds me of like silent hill one where like walking through the streets of silent hill, you have like the ground level is, is brightly lit even though you're walking through, like, this very, very foggy area. But, like, the moment that the, the lighting goes above your character, it just turns into just pitch black shadow. And, yeah, just that's, like, the first thing that really jumped out at me watching the episode um, is just how, how, how sort of horror some of the the lighting and and scene setups are, especially towards the beginning
1: yeah this is this this episode is a i think more than a lot of other episodes that have a very solid thread through them, like again, toys in the attic when well, that's Alien. Mm-hmm. we we in that's you know that's troped out this one i I feel like there's so much in this stew of an episode um which which lent you know for the better, I think um even in the amusement park, there's a lot of uh of side lighting, so instead mm-hmm. of you know. In a city scene at night, where would lights come from? Well, lights would come from above, from headlights. Here, everything's like low and off to the side. So you have these very harsh divides in light and shadow. Um, like you, <clears throat> I was Im- I-, I realized how simple but still impressive that the opening few shots are mm-hmm. when you're in the POV of Perot as he, you know, he can just jump over a building and fly. <laughs> because <laughs> for reasons uh but like their cg it's like oh you guys blew your cg budget to to set up a mood mm-hmm. and you know it wasn't like well we're gonna do this and it's going to be an impressive space battle it's like no no we'll, we'll spend some cg on this yeah which again was probably would take less time than animating the parallax in that way by hand it, yeah definitely yeah, they ooh, they they do a lot of work to set up the mood and tone for the episode.
0: Yeah, like those opening shots, I think really, really, really do a lot because you go from like the 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 lit like street level with the very harsh shadows above to shots where it's like when the car pulls in and you get the lighting from the alley hitting it from the side and it's just basically it's basically black and white. Uh, Mm -hmm. it is just like that harsh of like shadows and lighting coming from, uh, their sources in the shot. It is just, yeah, it's just so striking. And then when like Perot lands and you see his face for the first time and just like how harsh everything is on like the characters, it's, 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 it's really hard for it not to not make an impact
1: I feel like we'd be remiss if we don't mention the preview for this episode Mm -hmm. from Wild Horses, where it's just it's just shots of this episode as as they all are. But the only voiceover is Perot laughing. That's it. (laughs) Get ready. Yeah, I love how this episode,
0: the whole like impetus for the episode is just Spike left a bar like a minute too early or too late. And he ran into this killer, immortal clown man. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's just kind of great. It's just this weird serendipity that Spike left the pool hall just a few minutes too early and came across this, this like, super assassin.
1: Nothing means anything, man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Stuff just happens. Stuff just happens. Ah, uh, the, the fight scene.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the fight scene the first fight scene between Perot and and Spike is so good. It's just so it's so frenetic and like Spike's gun this episode, like we've heard it fire in a whole bunch of other episodes, but in this episode in particular, it sounds like a damn cannon. It is just so heavy and chunky when he fires it this time around. It's it's crazy. <laughs> Um, And yeah, just so- the fact that, that it just doesn't do anything. And whenever he tries to go hand
1: to hand, pro the food just kind of floats, kicks him. It's, oh man. Yeah, they made a conscious decision to have Perot animated in, I don't know the word for it, I guess a different style. But mm-hmm. it's like he does not belong in this show. Sort of the same way that Ed has different physics. Than, than any other character in the show. This is like that turned up to 11.
0: He has this almost like kind of cartoony nature to him. Like he he has this ability to like literally float around like a, a strange balloon man. Um, when he is like fighting and we get lots of close-ups of him, his arms are like real, they're not noodles, but they're still very sort of exaggerated. Like he has these big um big white gloves like a a mickey mouse and his his movements with his arms and legs are just very kind of they shoot out all over the place they're very harsh and then his, like his facial expressions are are very manic uh he's constantly got that grin on his face and is like drooling half the time too
1: i mean you mentioned it before with the sound design it's we'll get to uh every every now and again we'll get a close up of his his smile and then we just hear the teeth grinding together mhm like no this is the epitome of a of a rictus grin yes exactly like he, he's not doing this by choice yeah no it's just
0: become his nature it's it's mm-hmm. the only thing he knows how to do anymore
1: oh there uh, <laughs> this this episode's so hard but it rules so mm-hmm. much yeah Um, like
0: it's a it's a great episode it's
1: just yeah it's incredibly dark and and like flew by i think this might have been one Mm. of the some of these episodes i'm really feeling that 20 odd minute Mm -hmm. runtime and this one was like nope very i you know breeze through it as much as you can (laughs) yeah yeah It seemed like a lot of people are making a Batman connection, okay, uh, to to Pyro La especially and, and to the character and also the the sort of the scenic in this episode. I know you have more info, but I want to, I, w- I sort of want to plead my case, and you can tell me if I'm a dumb dumb or not. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so the court uh, will, will hear your case. <laughs> so a lot of people like in the, uh, I think. Uh, It's said that Perot was sort of a mishmash of Batman villains. Like, part of his look is part of the Penguin for being a chubby, besuited man. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a minor character called the Tally Man, who just looks like an old-timey tax collector. Uh, I think mainly because of the hat. Um, And then, like, you know, there are parallels to the Joker, especially the Mm -hmm. fact that he lures Spike to an amusement park for a showdown, which is a... (laughs) Plot line in The Killing Joke by Brian. Alan Moore and Brian Boland. That's, wow, I'm surprised I still have that on the top of my head. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> good for me. I don't remember any loved ones' birthdays, but <laughs> that's there. Um, so, yeah, I'm like, eh, the amusement park thing, like, okay. But I visually, visually, I think, and, and I think it's more in line with horror stuff, uh, he looks more like Lon Chaney's character, in the lost film London After Midnight. Um, It was released in 1927. Uh, It was a silent film by Todd Browning, who was the same director of Dracula, like Bela Lugosi Dracula Hmm. and Freaks. Um, But unfortunately, the last known copy was lost in a 1965 vault fire, which, so we don't... (sighs) They've tried to reconstruct it, but they don't have. But like, take a look at that and tell me if you think that's more or less... Yeah, okay. There, there, there's something... I feel like there's something of that in there. The top hat, the grin, the sort of floofiness, the rotundness, maybe. Yeah. But you but you have, like, actual facts about Batman in this episode, though.
0: Uh, I can definitely see the connection with the Law and Chaney character in London After Midnight. Uh, yeah, like, that is... Very much so. Like the top hat, the sort of sharp toothy grin, the eyes and all that. I could definitely see that being the case. Um and I, I you know, it's it's probably more of a, a situation of multiple influences going on there. But uh the Batman connection really sort of comes from the fact that Sunrise, the animation company that made Cowboy Bebop has worked on Batman the Animated Series before. They worked on seven episodes in the original run of the show, which was 1992 to 1995, if I remember correctly. Um, So they have actually worked on episodes in the past. It was actually Sunrise's Studio 6, which uh, the notable works of that studio include The Big O, Sergeant Frog and Tiger and Bunny. Um the big O should be the big one there. <laughs> yeah, the big giveaway. It, yeah, because it is just what if Batman had a giant robot instead of a Batman suit. So yeah, and then like visually watching the episode, especially those opening moments with like the cityscape and stuff like that has a very Batman the animated series sort of feel and I remember I, I think I was listening to a podcast where they were talking to Bruce, Tim or Paul Dini about the creation of the show. And one of the people that was working on the show had the reason the show looks the way it does is the fact that a lot of the backgrounds were actually painted on black paper. So instead of being, instead of being like a white paper or, you know, like a clear or, or anything like that, it was actually a a black paper, which gives it this much darker tone and provides this sort of texture to it, and this opening scene ha- very much feels like that. I, I'm, I'm curious to know if uh, Sunrise did the same thing, where they had parts of like the backgrounds painted on on black paper or not. Because um, I, I would not be surprised if that is the case. It is just such a a striking visual style. Some of the episodes that Sunrise did work on include. Uh, The Clock King, Mm -hmm. which is the 25th episode in the series.
1: Um, It's all coming back. Yes. Early Batman the Animated Series episodes were very much, okay, first half is going to be villain origin. Mm -hmm. And I remember that, that just seemed so insane that because he was a few minutes late, his whole day was ruined. He's like, you know what? Crime.
0: Yes, exactly. There's a couple others. So, like, Heart of Steel, which is notable for being the first <gasps> appearance of Barbara Gordon. Uh, I am the Knight, uh, The Clock King. Off Balance. The Man Who Killed Batman. Pretty Poison, which is Poison Ivy's debut. And The Cat and the Claw Part 1. Uh, those are all the episodes that Sunrise did support. They basically do support animation for. So, a lot of times in animation especially in the West, the home studio will animate, like do like a lot of the key animations and then they'll ship it out and have another studio do everything else for the most part. And it's just more economical for that studio. Um, And then they'll get them back and, and animate the whole thing. But yeah. So, so sunrise did that and given, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's definitely some move between all the different studios at sunrise. And just given sort of the visual style of Tong that there's definitely, there's definitely a Batman influence on the episode. I do definitely see the, uh, the London after midnight connection there. Um, I also like went to go check who was in the man who laughs, which was the German expressionist film that inspired, uh, the Joker. Mm -hmm. I believe that was Conrad Veidt. But yeah, so I just wanted to check on that too to see if there's a sort of crossover there. But yeah, so that's my
1: little uh, sunrise Batman connection for this episode. It's definitely there, and I think it's the it's an interesting thing about art and in the human brain. We are the we're trained as a survival instinct to try and make patterns out of things and try to make Mm -hmm. connections. Um, And it's it's interesting how with art, where it's like, well, there's we don't know exactly what goes into a thing and you know, we get a nice little ping in our brain when we make this sort of connection and, and it's fun to do, but I definitely Batman, some other things. I just, I have a knee jerk reaction whenever, whenever anyone says like, that's like the Joker mm-hmm. or even the Joker yeah. is referenced just because look, we live in a society <laughs> where it's, it, it's, it's, I guess, cringe as the kids was saying. To, to talk about the Joker. No, yeah, It's, I, it's uncouth I, a little bit now. Yeah.
0: I, I totally get it. Um, I think, I mean, even outside of the Joker, I think it's just sort of that knee-jerk reaction to immediately compare something to something else. And it feels like it devalues the thing that you're trying to compare it to or the thing that you're comparing to something else. It kind of, I, it devalues both of them. In both directions to a bit, I think. In that, yeah, totally, like, there's definitely, like, some homage and reference and inspiration from these other things. But just saying, oh, this is like this other thing is, you know, it's, it's not great. Like, you you want to be able to watch something and judge it on its own merits to a degree. And just saying, oh, Perot Lafu is a floating Joker penguin man <laughs> with a bunch of guns
1: is a bit reductive I yeah guess. i th- I think that's really the thing it's it's again with the the prevalence of superhero media mm-hmm. it, it seems yeah it seems too surface to say uh, batman you know mm-hmm. even though that's kind of what the show is about <laughs> yeah uh, even though it's kind of what our show is about yeah where it's like this is where this comes from this is where this comes from i don't I feel like there's a fine line and I feel like we, we tread that fairly well We're we're trying, we're not, we're not just like, it's not, we didn't look at something and go, Oh, that's that.
0: Yeah. We're we're not just saying that it's, Oh, Oh, this is like this thing or, Oh, this is inspired by this thing and leaving it at that. We're trying to delve at least a little bit deeper than that and talking about, Oh, the inspiration and how it seems to have affected the episode or whatever. Um, Trying to get, uh, trying to understand their inspiration and how they have done their own thing with it. Um, I definitely think sort of, sort of the thesis statement for the show or for our show.
1: Yeah, but I think, I think what you said is correct. It's the Batman connection just seems surface level, even though it's. I I think it's an accurate connection to a degree, Mm -hmm. but it just, it doesn't. It something feels like very eye rolly to me and that's just the the times we live in i think yeah fun fact about batman the animated series i think the early episodes were technically illegal to air uh uh, to illegal to broadcast on national television because the the black levels in the episodes were too low you can legally only have a certain degree of black and also a degree of white Color wise, in in your show, and they Mm -hmm. were they were too dark to air. (laughs) That's how yeah, that's how dark that show was. Yeah, God, that
0: show it is a master craft of animation, Uh, especially for the time. Like the that early nineties, the the stuff that they did with that show is amazing.
1: No, yeah, it's a reason. It's it's a lot of it's what a lot of people think of when they think of batman i'm i'm sure i'm certainly one of those people that how did i learn about batman from the animated series yes very much so do you want to uh learn a little bit about where the perot i guess the name slash character comes from certainly uh, let's get more into i had to learn about theater history <laughs> oh no. which, is, which is yeah which is not my forte not that i was against it I just wasn't expecting to go in this direction. So to understand sort of the name Perrault, uh, we, we can look towards a, I guess, play style or performance genre called Commedia dell'arte, which is an Italian art form that originated during the Renaissance. Uh, I think roughly translated, it means artful comedy or comedy of players. No one really agrees on its origins, but a lot of people speculate that it came from a different form cod, a tell farce. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, which was an improvised farce uh, using masks that were, and these this sort of style was preserved by wandering minstrels and bards. <laughs> Fun fact about Commedia Art, it was the first time in Italy, at least, that women were allowed on stage. Oh, huh. I, th- I don't think, and I think England wouldn't catch up to that for like another century. So get your act together past england all right so the the, the the and present england i i got my eye on you too the british must be stopped <laughs> yeah you guys heard about this this british empire i think we really need to do something about it what is comedia okay that's all well and good what is comedia dell what is that style of play what does that mean uh so the show consisted of a bunch of stock characters uh, stock with like a capital S um, think of stock characters as sort of like, uh, I don't want to say stereotypes because of the connotation. That's not really it. It's sort of a platonic ideal, perhaps uh, archetype, but okay. Yeah. Ar- archetype plus, because the different characters also had a bunch of memorized lines and a bunch of memorized gags, uh, which were called Lotzis. Um, you know, a bunch of different jokes, a lot of pee humor, a lot of butt humor. Um, Classic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so each actor took on one of these stock characters. They had a bunch of like gags and lines that were memorized. And then when they got on stage, they would improvise sort of, you know, puzzle piecing these bits and stringing them together. So think of a commedia dell'arte, sort of like a, a party game. Um, you know, everyone has... You you're not making a, or or like a Jackbox party game like equip something along those lines where it's like you don't have just pure raw materials you have bits and pieces and it's up to the players to put them in order into mm-hmm. a fun and entertaining way. So the stock characters they were based on regional types, uh, so each one had a specific accent. They had a way of dress. Uh, a lot of them wore masks. Um, and this style, actually, this style of theater actually lasted for like centuries. Um, fun fact: uh, the term slapstick, you know, Three Stooges, duck, knock, knock, knock. Why you a mm-hmm, a wise guy, eh? Mm-hmm. Um, so one uh, that term actually comes from one of the Stark characters called Harlequin, which they got from Batman.
0: <laughs> God damn it.
1: Uh, <laughs> So the Harley Quinn car- stock character actually had a wooden sword that he would beat people with for humor. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was called the Slapstick. So, yeah, there were a bunch of different stock characters. And one of those stock characters was named Perrault. Um, and Perrault is, like I said earlier, it's a nickname version of Pierre or, you know, translated to English, Peter. Uh, and he is, uh, I guess you could describe him as the sad clown. Um his role is usually pining after another stock character called Columbine, Columbine, one of those two. So this was a character that uh, uh, Perrault would pine after, Uh, but she usually like, no, I'm good. I'm with Harlequin. Uh, And Harlequin's sort of stock character was uh, a hungry, acrobatic idiot. That that was his thing. (laughs) The three funniest things you could be. Hmm. Oh, hmm. um, so uh, hold on. Wait. Harlock was just a Shonen protagonist, <laughs> <laughs> except horny. Well, I mean, I think all these characters still, were. But. Mm, depends, depends on what Shonen anime you're watching. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this that shit. Yeah, that was a that was a mid. You 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 got to hear me realize make that realization on air. <laughs> My brain's got to back up and recover from that for a second. Okay, so uh, Piero's outfit—he did not wear a mask. Uh, his face was usually painted white. Um, uh, wore a big white, fluffy blouse. Um, Pagliacci—that sort of yes, visual similar similar to that. But his most defining feature, and I think this plays into the episode, is his naivete. Uh, he is a fool who is a victim of pranks, but in general, is still trusting. And I think with in the episode with Perel Lafou, he is that's in the end we learn that due to experiments by the ISSP, uh, he's become this magic balloon killer man. But he has regressed to a childlike state. So again, his naivete towards things, um, the the fact that. He's a victim in the Commedia dell'arte. He's He's a victim of pranks where our perot is a victim of pieces of shit. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, more threads of connections that create this episode. Um, yeah. There's just a little, a little theater history for you.
0: Just to tack on to that. I noticed that one of the characters is Pulcinella who is the inspiration for punch of punch and Judy fame uh the the puppets Uh, and punch and judy
1: are also characters in cowboy bebop they are the host of big shots i i completely forgot i I, we haven't seen them in a while i missed them
0: yes missed them missed them a lot (laughs) um but yeah that's that's just my own little comedia dell'art uh knowledge When we see Perot's backstory in this episode, when Ed hacks her way into the ISSP and we're given the flashback with on the run playing over it. We're shown a lot of like really terrible stuff that happened to Perot. but we also see a cat at several points and this cat is what, what causes uh, Perot to freak out at several points in the episode. Remember, he, he hears a cat, sees a cat, he freaks out and tries to kill it. Um, obviously, because there, there is a connection there. There is a traumatic connection there. But the cat that we see in his flashback appears to have two differently colored eyes. And there's another character in the show that has two different colored eyes, Spike. And there's 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 a connection there, I think. I think there's some sort of Symbolism that there's this cat that is haunted Tong Poo Perot for who knows how long um, and that the person to finally finish him off is a man with two differently colored eyes. Uh, I think that's a very interesting
1: choice. I saw it as a a, sort of a check. uh, I guess a Chekhov's gun. Just mm-hmm. like, oh, here's the thing. Like, here's an unstoppable killing machine. How do you stop him? You know, and the and the fact that spikes too dumb to realize. Oh, I should just throw cats at him. Mm-hmm. Um, the two eyed thing would come to play as Perot's downfall. But I think, yeah, there's something. Do you have Do you have any other? Can you, can you go deeper on it, or is, is it just, a, that's, it's just I mean, that's, a, a discussion point that you would like to explore together?
0: Is, yeah, like it's, it's more of a discussion point, because it's just something that I, I, I kind of noticed watching it this time around, is that, hey, that cat appears to have two differently colored eyes, and Spike also has the same thing going on. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if that was... I'm curious what, what kind of connection they were trying to go for with it, other than... I guess Spike and the cat are the same, or Spike and the cat are both his downfall. Like, what is the situation there? What is
1: What What do you think that they were going for with that? I don't know if this will come to play, but Spike, see, this is at least the second time mm-hmm. um, that he's faced off against a, a victim of experimentation. Yeah. Um, and sort of ended the the suffering. Maybe that's uh maybe that is spike's role mm-hmm. throughout the series is that he does people definitely die around him um yeah but he does uh, Perot is a is a character that like whether they know whether he knows it or not like yeah they're they're suffering and they're and the suffering needs to come to an end and i maybe spike is the shepherd of that and it parallels the cat which sort of the harbinger of that. I, am I see Mm. all these straws and boy, oh boy, my grasping.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it it could just be a, a, a neat kind of visual thing, but I, yeah, I just, I noticed it this time around that cat has two colored eyes and so does spike. And I figure like there's very rarely like, especially something like that. There's very rarely not some sort of intended thing There, um, Spike runs into Perot and he then becomes his target for the most part, and he has to go and chase him down. And I forgot to check, because Perot gets Spike with a knife in their first encounter. He Mm -hmm. gets him in, in the arm, uh, before, you know, trying to blow him up with a grenade launcher. But a knife being thrown is also how Spike... Stops him, stops Tong Poo. But yeah, I think like the, the the one hit that he gets on him being the knife is 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 interesting. Um, it causes him to like freak out, and it is his ultimate demise. The whole scene where he is crying out at the end is a real hard watch, in my <laughs> opinion.
1: Oh yeah, it's, well it's again the montage of Perot's origin mm-hmm. gives you some some sympathy um and the, it's super artful mm-hmm. um but yeah it doesn't really hit until Perot gets hit in the leg and this starts he reverts you know like a kid like yeah. a kid playing a game he actually got hurt yeah which i'm sure hasn't happened in year and it's like crying out for his mommy and then being uh, we we've, we've barely touched on on spaceland oh, and how yeah, horrible God. that is but yeah Perot is cr- crushed by anim- giant animatronics uh-huh dressed as fun animals like chi- like childhood crush perot or like f- the f- the fantasy that Perot lived in hmm literally destroyed him it, it's, yeah uh, and we didn't learn anything yeah we didn't we it, didn't
0: really learn anything I think my, um I do think that this episode gives us a little bit more of uh, Faye and spike's relationship that's probably like the biggest sort of like overall growth in the episode is, as you can tell, that there's definitely like some some um some worry and some you know some caring going on
1: there between those two. Yeah, she tries to hide the 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 evite that Perot mm-hmm. sent from Spike because she's like, oh, this fool's gonna go there because mm-hmm. he's dumb and he this has a kid. death wish. Yeah. A in my...
0: Okay. That's what I figured they were saying, but they call him a lunkhead
1: a lot. I was like, man, lunkhead, that's a good one. I haven't heard yeah. that in a while. That's a, that's a dad <laughs> insult. <laughs> you lunkhead. Before, uh, before we get back to being serious, I do think that in the English version, they cover up a poop joke. Hmm. Yeah. Because uh, uh, Ed gets the email, tries to go to Faye for it, Faye uh, we get to Faye she's in the she's in the loo smoking and when (laughs) she comes out when she's about to go to the email I think her line in the English version is something along the lines of you know she's talking about it seems like she's talking about creditors Mm -hmm. because she assumes that's who it's from and in mine she says quote I would have been done if I had a little more time (laughs) (laughs) which means she's not eating right (sighs) oh (laughs) not enough bell peppers and beef I get more the diet. <laughs> so we can so the English version is like, you know what? This episode about a killer balloon clown. Yeah. Super cool and good. Let's teach these kids about nihilism. Ah, oh, poop jokes. We can't have that. From a lady. Yeah. Um
0: Faye also gets a bunch of great faces this episode. Again. She
1: she always has the best mm. expressions.
0: Uh yeah, Spaceland. <laughs> Wanna
1: talk about Spaceland? The fight in Space land is unsettling for a bunch of reasons, but I think part of it is that rarely in Cowboy Bebop do we see the cutesy mascotification uh, of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we see it very briefly in Gateway Shuffle with the mm. Space Warriors a uh-huh. wee bit uh, again to the same effect of a juxtaposition. Um, so that so that so that's horrible here we're just lambasted with it um spike beating up a goofy donald hybrid <laughs> yeah which he like he shoots it and it gives you it gives you some
0: like ash from alien white blood uh and then he also like kicks it and it appears to like react to his kicking as if it can feel him, which I thought was a little like, oh.
1: <laughs> Why did you program
0: me to feel pain? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's real unsettling. And then when he escapes into the space jump, not space jump, space mm-hmm. jump, uh, and the the weird little hologram
1: angel is like, hey, no, you can't be back here. Let's go play we, outside. Which is bro like... I really that felt so deep, mm-hmm. like it, from from a world building perspective. Because like yeah, totally in your that simple thing, like your brain's immediately like has to make the connection of like oh, this is a safety measure that the part created in case people accidentally go behind the scenes. That is cutesy enough. That doesn't de- that again how Disney World would do, mm-hmm. doesn't destroy the illusion of the part.
0: It's a non-frightening sort of method of redirecting somebody. So if, like, a kid walks back there, this weird little hologram angel shows up and is all nice and cute and, and fun to the kids and tries to get them out of there till you know, at least somebody can show up.
1: Oh, yeah. you. I'm sure an alarm's going off so, in some control. Somewhere. Somewhere. When that's activated. Oh. Again, so quick. <laughs> but there's a lot of thought to it. And it's not... It, it's also awarding. It's also like some very quick foreshadowing for you know a bunch of penguin carts mm-hmm. about to just bomb into Spike.
0: Yeah, Spike ends up on uh, a Mario sixty four stage. <laughs> uh huh. Has to worry about a bunch of penguins racing.
1: So much work. So many references. So
0: I think it's it's also really neat. This is the first time that we really explicitly see another place on Mars. And how it's how Mars is basically there's a bunch of cities and they're all just like in craters and there's like roads and stuff going in between them. But they all have like the the atmosphere producing wall. Yeah, because I think I don't think we've seen like them go any other place other than like that one main city. And if they end up anywhere else, they just kind of are there. We don't ever actually see them going there. Mm -hmm. So I think seeing Spike actually show up to Spaceland was actually kind of neat.
1: Oh, there's
0: that's just like one like little thing. I don't remember. I didn't remember from like originally watching the episode.
1: Spaceland is abandoned, right? I I would I think for Perot to have total control, maybe or maybe it's just like the off season. It's yeah. Yeah. It's just if it's abandoned, then it's like, oh wow, there's already abandoned places on Mars. You, you've co- you've colonized <laughs> and said no thanks to certain areas. Yeah, no thanks, Space Disney. <laughs> Pulled that shit back on Earth. You ain't pulling that shit yeah, on Mars. Yeah, yeah, we we know how it starts. It's a cutesy land, and then you buy up all the IPs. It's like Euro Disney, but on Mars. <laughs> I think it's you said it in the in the episode notes that you have where it's, it's just striking imagery and i think this is mm-hmm. just it's it's literally and figuratively a playground for for the animators oh yeah to to show off and i keep saying it and i'm gonna keep saying it you know nothing nothing means anything and yeah. part of that for me especially is you know you have this very tragic death for perot and then that's when that that's when jet calls spike and like hey i figured out who this guy is and spike's like it doesn't i don't need it anymore it's over and spike just doesn't care <laughs> it's like yeah. why do i need it why do i need to know any of this and so in a way to me in a way it's like is the show saying like yep all that suffering sure was for nothing
0: yeah like i think at, at that point he's you know pros dead and like that that was the whole thing Spike was going there to stop him or die. And now that Spuro was stopped, he doesn't need any of that information anymore. It's not gonna help him. It's just going to it's just going to burden him with a tragic backstory that, you know, he's full <laughs> up on those. So to him, yeah, it doesn't really matter anymore. I know when he when Spike is going to go to space land when he gets the, the evite, you know, he muses on whether or not this is going to be the guy that finally gets him. Uh, Even like kind of half joking uh, just to kind of mess with Faye. But that's, that's kind of a thing that spike has going for him. He, he's always kind of wondering, Hey, is this going to be it? Is this going to be the, the thing that finally kills me?
1: It's just, and I think the show realizes this. It's just cartoonish at this point of spike going headlong into danger mm-hmm. kind of hoping to die because i uh, with gren you know there's a lot of build up and everyone's like come on spike don't what are you doing it's you know they it's very it's very you know they really they really milk it and dramatize it where this is like no we're not gonna have that <laughs> and even and even spike like saying i won as you said uh, him joking around with Faye, sort of teasing her mm-hmm. wondering if this is his last one Like, Spike treats that as a joke, i.e. the the show treats it as almost a gag. Mm There, It's, I guess, maybe the meaning, I I know what I've said several times, but maybe the meaning is a commentary on the past episodes of Spike in these situations, which he gets into a bunch. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or maybe just the genre itself of... These sort of shows and these sort of, you know, the, these hard-boiled things of, like, if you go there, you'll die. Like, yep, I've already done it, like, 12 times. Yeah. This one's no different. Let's let's cut all the nonsense out.
0: I mean, yeah, there's even an homage to Ballad of Fallen Angels in this episode where they, you know, they fish Spike out of the water and and get abandoned up and everything. And Faye even comments on like, hey, didn't
1: know we had a mummy on board. Remember the last time this happened? We 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 fought we solved it. I think. I think we found it. I think this if this episode had nothing, nothing means anything. That's that's just the 2020 vibe uh-huh. <laughs> that I'm going with. Um but yeah, I think this episode is is really a meta commentary on the past couple episodes. That are of this nature, like the show is almost fed up with it mm. <laughs> of, of these type of things, which relates to a degree to the to the to the movie we'll talk about.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, I think I think that's it. I think it's just they're commentating on the show itself and the structure of it, and almost not a middle finger, but maybe a tongue stuck out, pull down the eyelid mm-hmm. of yeah, this is. They, they took a, in the large scheme of things, a nothing episode and made it one of the most visually stunning episodes of the series.
0: Yeah, I mean, almost exactly. It's, it's a very sort of simple story. So why not put a bunch of flash and panache into the actual production from the opening where it's super like striking, harsh shadows to the flashback? Which has its own like very intense, bright, like clinical visual style to Spaceland, which is this cartoony land of make believe, but still with that sort of dark, shadowy appearance. Yeah, it's it's very. There's there's not really another episode quite like it in the the series. I think.
1: Yeah, we we solved we solved it. Sunrise ha! take that we we're we're smart it's all about the joker (laughs) that's what this episode is
0: it's all about how parole
1: the food lives in a society (laughs) it's how it's about how we get what we deserve Mm -hmm. (laughs) let's talk about movie recommendations (laughs) okay So for movie recommendations, we, we've talked about the French New Wave and I would say at that point of the show, speculated influence on Cowboy Bebop. Well, now it's like, no, I think that we can confirm this, this myth is not busted. Uh, the, the relationship between the French New Wave and Cowboy Bebop. Uh, and of course, I'm talking, of course, like pff, we're talking about le Fou from 1965, written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard, uh, one of the founding fathers of French New Wave. Um, And I think this is the first and probably only time that we have the episode title and movie title be the same Mm -hmm. in the show. So uh, mark your bingo card, I guess. (laughs) Um, So this film stars Jean-Paul Belmondo, uh, who was the main protagonist in Breathless that we talked about before, uh, and Anna Karina, uh, who was married to Goddard at the time and was just, man, she was in a bunch of his movies <laughs> and it is uncredited, but loosely based on the novel obsession by Lionel white, who was an American journalist and crime novelist. Um, a bunch of his work got adapted for the screen. I think maybe his best known one, at least the one that popped out at me uh, is he wrote a novel called clean break, which was the basis for the killing uh, by Stanley Cooper. One of hmm. his earlier films. Um, the plot of Piro follows a man named Ferdinand who is unhappily married and he escapes his boring society life uh, and travels from Paris to the Mediterranean Sea with Marianne, a girl who is chased by hitmen from Algeria. Um, so it's, but that ain't it. That ain't the movie. <laughs> it, it's sort mm-hmm. of, it, it's definitely the, the very, very thin skeleton that it hangs on. Again, like a lot of French new wave films, it sort of takes these American genres. I guess this would be like a lovers on the run film and then use that as sort of a base and then flips it on its head or explores different things. Um, This, man, oh man, is this a French art film? Hmm. Uh, So I will go ahead and say, if you are not in the mood for that, uh, this probably won't be up your alley. And, And I'll admit this one, I just i had to watch this one i'm like it's the name of the it's the name of the damn episode i have to (laughs) i have to i have to absolutely have to watch this one and i think there are interesting bits in it i think the sort of set pieces and different bits are far more interesting than it is as a whole um it's very influenced by pop art with its References and visuals. Um, everything's very bright, technicolor, almost primary use of reds and blues. Um, you'll just get whole ass shots from like paintings or comic strips that it like f- that fill the frame. Ran not randomly, but you know, without it's not a cutaway to something else in say the scene. Mm-hmm. It's like nope, here's this now to sort of show the mood. Um, there's like weird slapstick. She, they're feeling, I think this is a bit of a stereotypical scene um, where it's people who are on the run. Oh, we don't have money. How are we going to pay for this thing? And they do it at a gas tank and they straight up open up the hood of the car, wait for the attendant to look in it. And then they slam it on his head and he's bonked out with one hit. And I don't, and like, it's not again, learning more about, Having to learn more about Godard this week, uh, not that I'm an expert in any way, shape, or form, but understanding his sort of love and use of artificiality in the in these like supposedly realistic films—that's sort of his thing. It's like it's it's not a bug; it's a feature, <laughs> right? Oh, fun reference! I think that was in this episode. Uh, so in the film, uh, we'll sometimes cut to different neon signs like close-ups to them blinking. Mm. Uh, like one at one point straight up says cinema. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we get a little bit of that as Spike exits the pool hall. Yes. Uh, so I think, you know, a, a nice wink to the camper there. In this, again, in this movie, there, there's impromptu musical sequences. Uh, the score will cut in and out to, from my understanding, to sort of show the artificiality of things. Characters mm. talk directly to the audience. Um it's it's like this beautiful mess, and I wish I would have seen this earlier. And that's sort of the problem with I think watching supposedly influential media from the past. Um I I don't know if we met if I've made this reference specifically, but it's um how John Carter, the the, the film adaptation of the of the stories, Princess of right. Mars uh when that made it, when that was made into a film aside from disney trying to bury it for whatever reason it wasn't that impressive because we it had already been stolen from for for decades mm-hmm. you know it's a story from what the 20s um 1912 1912 <laughs> so yeah over you know over a century old society and artist hardy picked pieces from it and I think that's the same way for this. They're, they're like interesting techniques that at the time, you know, are revolutionary, especially compared to modern film. And I think and I still think it's in this film Parola food is definitely like an exploration of craft and form and how you can convey something rather than a standard plot to follow and that in some instances can be grading especially when it's been stolen and taken from a bunch so fun fact about godard is that apparently that apparently in a lot of his movies and especially this one uh the scripts would not be written until the day before and he would let the actors improvise a bunch of things and that's and that's very prevalent and that's not but not that's not an insult and He said about the film, it was "quote connected with the violence of loneliness that lie so close to happiness." Today, it's very much a film about France, and it's it seems more like a movie that Godard is using to get some things off his tr- off his chest. Um, during this time, he was again I talk about pop art, which, from an art history perspective, is just the 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 lifting up. Of consumer art, graphics, packaging, pop culture, comics, as uh, sort of raising that up as a high art form. So he mm-hmm. he even though he used that, he was still against consumerism. There's a whole part of why the main character gets bored is that he goes to a party and there's these very quick cuts, but almost everyone at the party, their discussion sounds like an ad. They're talking about like a specific product <laughs> and how good it is. Um this was during the Vietnam War and you get some scenes and talk with that and sort of, again, they're the French New Wave inspired by American cinema in the 50s and sort of him reconciling with like, well, I love the American cinema, but like, I, I, can't, I can't love the American politics at the time. Um, so it's, I think, again, I think I've always seen Breathless. It, but it feels like from what I've learned and what I've watched, it feels like this is this movie in particular is sort of Godard on a plate at this time. And again, the more I think about it, the more Cowboy Bebop is like this very French New Wave, not just influence, but sort of stylistically similar show. Where it's it's like like it says on the tin, a new genre unto itself. It's taking all these elements and trying to tell them in a different way, and I think mm-hmm. this this episode, the episode of the show in particular, really pushed it. And I think that's, you know, I think that's why the title for the episode, and I think that's why the homage to this film in particular. If you're in the mood for, if you're in the mood for some French art film, man, uh, I, I do <laughs> recommend it. Um, it's I don't, it's not for anywhere. Two Two has failed me. Why? Why no uh, art films? Tubi <laughs> might be a little too good for Tubi at times. <laughs> it's if you're in France, it's available on Netflix. I actually did a little more digging. I'm like, oh, I got to get that VPN. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, us, tri- let us know. Yeah, I got to trick the internet. But yeah, that's that's the that's the recommend for this week.
0: Okay. I also have a recommendation. It is a little bit more in line with the visual style of the episode. Uh I'm going to say go out if you have not seen it, go watch Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. Ooh. It is a feature length Batman the animated series film. Um it was actually released in theaters uh December 24th, 1993 and it is incredibly oh, goodness, a
1: good movie. Mhm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, kind of um it's it's incredibly good. It's sort of um a a it's it's largely inspired by Batman Year 1 and Batman Year 2 story arcs, but basically you get a lot more background into Bruce Wayne in the animated series. You learn about his ex fiance Andrea Beaumont, who arrives back in town and there's also a series of um, murders of Gotham City crime bosses by this mysterious character known as the Phantasm. Um, and yeah, like that's all I'm really going to say about it. It is a very, very good, good, good movie. And visually is probably the the closest thing you're going to find that's on par with this episode. Uh, yeah, that's really all I got to say about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very good. I remember seeing it when I was very young. You get some you get some real good like melodrama out of it. Some great performances
1: by Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill and Abe Vagoda. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I I don't know why I didn't watch it in theaters, because I, I distinctly remember it coming to theaters. And maybe cause it's I mean, this is what, Christmas Eve it gets released? Mm-hmm. December 24th. And I think it might have just came and went. It might have been a because Small town, small theater that, well, maybe it didn't come to my theater. Maybe I just remember the poster because I feel like this would have been one that I like would beg, you know?
0: I don't remember if I saw this in theaters or not. I think I would have been like five when this came out. So
1: I would have been 11, and I definitely wasn't too old for cartoons Mm -hmm. at that point. But I think in my small town, I don't think we got it, and I had to just end up watching it in like three parts <laughs> on TV the next year,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: um
0: yeah, I mean, like you said, it was a a box office failure. Um, apparently it was also like rushed out the theaters like on short notice. I think the Warner Brothers probably just wanted something for the holiday season, so
1: they just kind of rushed it out the door. Ooh, it's again, the show, ooh, the show. Was the backbone for Kids WB, Mm-hmm. you know everything, sort of rode off that. No, it was on Fox. I don't. This isn't. This isn't some. Part- it started other on Fox. Show.
0: Yeah, it started on Fox and moved over to to WB eventually. But um, but yes, so go check it out. Um, if you have a DC, uh, universe subscription, it's on there. Um, otherwise, you'll have to rent it. But it is totally worth it. Uh, it. Is yeah, you get to see some some real good uh Batman, like
1: early, early Batman stuff. So that's what I yeah got. Excellent. Yeah. Double feature that. I'm, <laughs> sure, <laughs> yes, they, I'm Lafou, sure Mask mm-hmm. of the Phantasm. Yeah, I'm sure they mix well together.
0: That has been session 20, Pearl LeFou. Thank you very much for joining us. If you would like to follow us, you can check us out on Twitter. We're at thinking anime. Uh, you can email us at thinking at gmail.com. We would appreciate if you were to rate and review us on whatever podcasting service you use. Um, share this with your friends that you know like anime or maybe friends who don't like anime. And You're like, hey, you want to know why anime can be good sometimes? Listen to these guys talk about this show. If you'd like to follow me personally... Uh, you can find me on Twitter, I'm at Kamenotaku, that's K-A-M-E-N-O-T-A-K-U. You can also check me out on a couple other podcasts, like uh, the Roleplaying Exchange, Technical Difficulties Roleplaying Podcast, uh, I'm occasionally on Role Playing Public Radio, and I also live stream with the Best Power Brigade every now and then. So check that out on Twitch. Aaron,
1: where can they find you? Uh, They can find me looking up that The Good Son, a movie we talked about in an earlier episode, came out the same year as Masters of the Phantasm. Uh, (laughs) But you can also find me on Twitter uh, at Aaron J. Shelton. Um, That's usually where I'm hanging out online. Uh, if you want to listen to a more joke-filled podcast with zero analysis you you can go to my other podcast Kame House Party that I host with Vince White we're going through every episode and iteration of Dragon Ball in a fun and comedic manner Uh, we also stream every Thursday night on twitch.tv slash Kame House Party a variety of games and a variety of good times you just got dynamic we did yeah, we did just and there we and as you put and as you so <laughs> lovingly put it, and there we shall stay.
0: Yes, you're going to be there
1: for a while. 20, I, I think I I could reveal this here. I know there are fans of both uh shows listening, but I did I might have peaked just a hair just to see how many episodes <laughs> were on Namek, and I'm like, oh yeah, twenty twenty one, the year of Namek. I think I mm-hmm. we can go ahead and call it. That's, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't think we'll be doing anything else that year. Uh, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Cool. Uh,
0: so once again, thank you all for joining us. You can check us out in two weeks, correct? We're, we're off our little mm-hmm. hiatus uh, for the holidays. So uh, You can check us out in two weeks for session 21 of Cowboy Bebop, Boogie Woogie Feng Shui. And until then, I've been your host, Noah
1: Carden. And I've been your other host, Aaron J. Shelton. And we've been thinking too hard.